and it went around eventually Israel got them back so uh, a lot of them. some of them were lost completely some of them were actually found on the bottom of a shoe because it's it's uh, old paper wrapped in leather and they used it and they cut it and used it for sole for shoe so yeah you can imagine that but this is kind of the area and there's a, a young Alan and Lisa there I, I did this just to kind of show you the scale so it's not like the kid just climbed up I mean he had to climb <laughs> to get to a lot of the areas huh well there's multiple caves there's one here there's one there and there's one over there I got another picture coming up here um so you can see some of the caves up there. So there's all sorts of places to have caves in this area. This is one of the main caves that they found stuff in. Um, and to give you a perspective, I have that. Kind of shows you down where it's at, down in the valley and stuff. So they found a whole bunch of these. It's uh, located about 1,300 square, I mean, square feet, 1,300 feet below sea level, um, about a mile west of uh, the Dead Square. Sea and 13 miles from Jerusalem. So you, you kind of kind of go up and then back down um, to the Dead Sea along that. And um, it was all excavated, a lot of it in the 50s. Um, they found some very interesting ruins, storehouses for food, aqueducts, uh, mikvahs, which are baths to, to purify yourself as you were doing that. They found um, ink wells, uh, they found a, a place where they would all write, a scriptatorium is what they would call it. Uh, they found benches and tables and all sorts of things in this area. Here's kind of, uh, on the left, there's a mikvah. Uh, well, actually, both these pictures show mikvahs. There was mikvahs everywhere out there. Um, they were very much in the cleanliness. Again, if they had an impure thought, did something wrong, they would have to go back and purify themselves before they could come back and continually continuing to copy the scrolls. So there was a lot of baths around the area. Um, kind of gives you a, a large scale uh, look at it. We walked around over the place. Um, again, the caves way back up there in the hills. Uh, the Essenes, they believe, are the ones that were out here in this area. You might hear of the Essenes. Uh, they're written about a couple of times uh, within Scripture. Uh, they lived here from about 135 B.C. to 68 A.D. And uh, this is basically, they hid so many books. And there's more stuff that we probably haven't found in these hills. Uh, and they hit a lot of stuff from the Romans. Their whole idea was copy the Word of God, preserve the Word of God. So that's what they were doing uh, in these areas. Hey, guys, um, if you want to grab chairs and bring them or whatever, sit on the floor or whatever you want to do, uh, grab a drink before you come down. We're just going through some pictures here. Um, in all the fragments that they found... They found fragments of every book of the Bible except for one. Does anybody know what book they did not find? Revelation. Nope. Um, I don't know. No, I think they found some Revelation too because it's every book. Esther. Esther. Because there was a lot of Jews that did not like, like the book of Esther. And I think I, the, a lot of Jews did, but there was even some back then. But... I think, who is it that doesn't, uh, is it the Catholics that don't have Esther in their book? 
I, do, I forgot who doesn't have Esther in their, um, their book. It may be the Jews because it does not explicitly mention God. Yahweh's name is not in the book anywhere. We see his fingerprints all over the story, but it's not written in anywhere on it. So there were some people when they got to the Council of Nicaea and all those things where they were debating on what books, because there were a lot of extra writings during the time, hence the um, other books that are in the uh, uh, Catholic Bible. Um, I forgot what those are called. Um, the Apocrypha, thank you. Yeah, we call it that. They call it scripture. Um, uh, they're extra biblical writings, okay? They're good for study, as in like what I mean by study is to figure out what's going on at the time and how people felt and how people lived. It's good for that, but it's not good for study as in the word of God, okay? Um, there's, uh, there's multiple things that make up a reason why a book would be included in the word of God. And the councils went over that. Maybe sometime we'll talk about the councils and the reasons why those certain books were picked and certain books of the time weren't uh, picked. So uh, we'll do that sometime. But uh, Esther was the only book that's, I think it's the Jewish Bible, it's not in there because it doesn't explicitly mitch, mention uh, God. So, uh, okay, that's it for the, just thought I'd throw that out there because I think we talked about that last week. That is a great question that I have no clue about. Um, uh, no, I would assume it's, it's going to be Hebrew. Um, because they're Jewish writers and so forth. It may be some Aramaic. I don't know. I'll, that's a good question to be something. Somebody could actually look it up on their phone real quick if you wanted to. Um, yeah. Greek and Aramaic. Um, that might that would be more in line with New Testament. Old Testament would definitely be Hebrew. New Testament, I don't know if they put it in Hebrew, if they put it in the Greek and Majority Aramaic. Majority of it was in Hebrew. Majority of it was in Hebrew. So there you go. Yes. Back to the Jewish Bible. The Jews only recognize what the Pentateuch, the first four or five books. No, no. In fact, we're going to hit some of that today. Um, no, they recognize all of the Old Testament. They put it in a different order. In fact, if you pick up a Jewish Bible, their books are going to be in a different order um, for certain particular reasons. Uh, they even believe that the his, what we call historical books, they would call prophetic books also. But the, prophets, They're, the prophets that they rejected and killed, and everything, they still, still believe them. Still, yeah. Still, yeah, they were still prophets, even though the contemporaries killed them. Mm-hmm. So, yep, you know, people come later on and go, okay, yeah, we really screwed up on that one. You know, that's basically what they did. So, yep. Um, there, I'll have to find out if there are any books that aren't in there other than Esther, but I think all of them are except for Esther. So, well, let's get to, uh, basically what I've done is for this lesson, I decided to not go into Joshua yet. Because we, we talked kind of the history of the Old Testament a little bit, um, or the kind of overview of the Old Testament, the very first lesson. I want to kind of do an intro to the historical books. Um, yes, Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy are historical books. 
but the Jews and all that refer to those as the Pentateuch. Um, it's kind of the beginning. Um, and again, starting you know, beyond uh, Deuteronomy is the historical books when it comes to how do we live, what do we do, what decisions are we going to abide by God or not as we go into uh, the promised land. So the Pentateuch records, the first five books, record the birth of the God's people, and it continues with this kind of second section, if you want to call it that, um, as we call the historical books. So these, you know, these books are important, first of all, because it's, it's a vast historical sweep. I mean, it's like 800 years in length from Joshua's conquest into the Promised Land to the Persian Empire to which Esther lived in. Okay, so it's a huge swath of time there. And it begins by, you know, describing Israel's conquest of the Promised Land with Joshua. And they continue by recounting the period uh, before Israel had kings. So you had to go through the judges and all that. Uh, when judges ruled with judges in the book of Ruth. In fact, let me go to um, this right here. You're going to have Joshua coming into the land. You have jo uh, the judges' time, and Ruth is contemporary. First, second Samuel, start describing the kings. We'll talk about that, uh, or at least the first two kings. And then the chronicles kind of overlap a lot of that stuff, and it goes all the way down to Esther, uh, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and then the minor prophets, and again, we'll hit minor prophets later, but again, a minor prophet is somebody we just don't know much about. You have the major prophets, and then you have some of the minor prophets, okay? And again, they're minor just because we just don't know much about their lives, okay? So it's not, oh, we listen to the major prophets and ignore the minor prophets. No, it's God's Word, so, uh, but we'll get to that. So these books cover the period of uh, the monarchy um, and the United Kingdom, uh, or you know, uniting the kingdom of Saul and David and Solomon, and eventually divided Israel into northern and southern kingdoms. Um, uh, you know, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and that's First and Second Samuel's and First and Second Kings. A lot of that stuff happens, and then you have Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah retell the history but they do it from a theological perspective. So do you get that? So you have what's going on is Ezra and Nehemiah and all that. Afterward, they're retelling the history, but they're doing it straight from a theological standpoint. So it covers some of the same subjects. They're just trying to get you to understand God's point because it's a narration really for the, for the post-exile, okay? For when the people come back to the land. Uh, a lot of them grown up now for 70 years in where? Babylon, Persian Empire, okay? The Medes and the Persians and all what we're going through with Daniel and all that. A lot of them were, were from there and they'd spent 70 years. So they hadn't been taught a lot of the stuff. Now, some of them, you know, took to the scriptures, stayed with the scriptures. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the ones that we know, there was plenty of others that stuck with it. But many that went back would really have no clue whatsoever of the biblical history. So Ezra and Nehemiah and all them write some of that history and, and as they're rebuilding the wall and they tell that story. So these are historical books, but they're also important because they're theological. Uh, they describe Israel's history, but they're much more than just a historical fact writing 
books, okay? It, this is not uh, your, your eighth grade you know, history class that you roll your eyes at if you don't like history or you love because you love history, okay? This is, you know, everything comes from a theological standpoint. It's really important because God's word is for all Christian believers because the church has said over and over that there's values in these books and there's values in the scriptures for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, as 2 Timothy says, okay? So we need to not forget about that. A lot of times we ignore the Old Testament when I don't believe we really should because it shows God's heart. It shows what God intended. So let's do a quick, uh, well, let me just say this. It's more than, histor than historical value. Uh, it traces God's uh, history of his relationship with the nation, revealing his faithfulness and his steadfast love when people rejected God. God continued coming back and loving them. When you and I would have just said, forget you, and we would have been done. Okay, uh, but that's not God. So it's important that we learn from it, not not merely just learn about it. Okay, it's great to know dates. It's great to know that. Okay, in 722 the Assyrians came down and they took the northern tribes off, and in what 538 BC, the you know the Babylonians came through and they took the, you know Daniel and the guys off. It's great to know that, but it's more important to know the reasons why behind those things, not necessarily the dates. So let's do a, a quick overview. And again, we'll go into each one, but just a quick overview of each one. The book of Joshua was written to show the, the value of obedience because it paints a picture of Israel's successful conquest into the promised land and showing you know, the, the, the example of the absolute commitment to God's word and dependence on his power. When they depended on God and they remembered his word, they conquered well. When they did not depend on God and they went out and tried to do it on their own, we will see, and we saw for those that were here when we went through the book of Joshua, uh, you saw that, that uh, uh, they did not conquer. And it shows that, you know, the examples of, of disobedience within that, and it shows that we should depend on God's power. So in general, the book of Joshua is interested, the whole idea of Joshua's interested in portraying times when Israel was faithful in obedience to God's call. So that's the gist of the book, what it's trying to accomplish, okay? Then, uh, well, and there's some, there's far fewer contrast between obedience and disobedience in Joshua than when you read First and Second Kings, okay? And you're just going to see one, you know, one example after another, after another. So the point of Joshua is say, hey, look, when you screwed up, see what happened. But we, what we really want to focus on is when you don't screw up, when you follow God. OK, so that's the overview. And then you have the judges and it relates to an almost hopeless state um, of Israel after the conquest. They get into the land. Uh, they finally get to a point where they've like we're tired of fighting. Do I have to do this anymore, Dad? You know, kind of the whininess. We just want to settle down. We don't care that these other people worship another God, you know, next, next door. You know, that kind of idea. And it gets them in trouble over and over. So they fell victim to religious 
compromise. So in Israel seemed, you know, incapable of sustained periods of obedience to God's will. And, you know, and it really appeared doomed to fail in many ways. You have temporary periods of obedience that brought peace and success. Usually what would happen is you would have one generation that would be just on fire for God. The next generation, not so much. The third generation, not at all. And then it would bring back a revival, sense of revival. Think of Josiah as one of the kings. Um, you know, him clearing, cleaning out the temple and finding the word of God and going, what's this? And learning about God and so forth. And you had a revival. So you had periods like that that would go through that. Um, but, you know, the book of Judges was written to show Israel's um, need in a sense for a king they're the desire for the king and god's saying if you get a king this is what's going to happen he's going to take your land he's going to take your you know the cream of the crop of your families he's going to go out and fight you're going to have to do all these things and of course that happens but they needed somebody to in a sense try to control them because judge the judge's system was not working for israel now then you have ruth that's kind of inserted after the book of judges and I love the book of Ruth. It's one of my favorite books of the whole Bible. Boaz is one of my favorite uh, historical figures uh, that's in the Bible because it illustrates, the whole book illustrates God's sovereign care to a faithful family. So God remains faithful to the nation, but he also at the same time is going to be faithful to your family if you stay faithful to God and choose to do what's right. And that's what Boaz does with Ruth, okay? They made faithful decisions. They made, you know, godly decisions, and the Lord blessed them because of it. And he uses this faithfulness of the single family uh, to work a miracle and provide Israel's greatest king. And do we know who that is? David, okay? I think it's his grandmother or great-grandmother, right? Forgot. We'll figure it out when we get there. Um, but it's either grandmother or great-grandmother. Um, Ruth is. And, and David's king. It's really cool because Ruth is not even um, an Israelite at this point. Okay? So it's kind of cool. So then you have the book of Samuel. And you trace this early, it traces the early history of Israel's monarchy. Okay? And Samuel was a prophet and a judge who led Israel through a transition from the judges to the kings. Uh, the book tells stories of the first two kings of, of uh, you know, Saul and David. And it does a great job of contrasting the heart and the desire of the two and the major events really in David's kingship. And uh, so then we move into the book of Kings after that, where it details the history of the monarchy from Solomon to the fall of Jerusalem. Yes, sir. How would you define the difference between uh, the kings and the judges? The kings and the judges. Well, the judges were appointed by the Lord. Okay. The kings got their kingship by birth or by killing or assassination. Um, there was more of a political rule where the judges were supposed to be a a go-between between the priests and the theological rule over the nation. Okay? We probably don't know how many. Do we know how many judges? Were they numerous? 
You know, that's a great question that we'll hit when we hit the judges. I'll, let me write that down right now because I will forget um, how many judges were there. That's a, I never thought about that. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't think so. Because the priests would be, but not necessarily the judges. So, because we even have women judges for those that don't like women in ministry. Okay, so I'll just throw that out there. But I'll leave that alone for a later date. Um, but uh, yeah, so it contrasts, the book of Kings does a great job contrasting the good kings versus the bad kings. The good kings versus the bad kings. And unfortunately, there's more bad kings than good kings, okay? Um, and, it, you know, the obedience and disobedience goes back and forth. And things go well for Solomon as he starts out initially, but he failed to remain faithful to Yahweh. He failed, to, you know, he, he wasn't faithful to God, which resulted in a split kingdom uh, with Israel in the north and Judah in the south, which even gets to a point where the, um, the north was doing their own sacrifices at their own temple because they didn't want to send their priests and people down to do sacrifices to the southern kingdom because they might be influenced to come back to the southern kingdom. So they did a un- very ungodly thing. And that... Uh, uh, when we get there, I'll actually show you pictures of the temple where they sacrificed it at. And you can go there and sit on those 3,000-year-old stones uh, and, and contemplate what they did against God because uh, they have the exact place on that. Uh, but Judah bounced between evil kings and a few good ones until the wickedness of certain kings was just too great. God had rebuked them over and over. So Nebuchadnezzar... And his Babylonian military machine conquered them in 587 B.C. I, said, I think I said 548 earlier. It's 587. And uh, the Assyrians did the uh, north in 722 B.C. So the rest of the historical books come from the, they call it the post-exilic, but it's just post-exile, after the exile, period. The books of Chronicles, um, form the, the first commentary of the scriptures, basically. Uh, if you read uh, Chronicles, it's almost like a common, you know, it's almost like a modern day commentary on the Bible. It's kind of a modern day commentary over the, or, you know, for that time, modern day commentary over the first of the kings and all that kind of stuff. Because it, it's actually kind of chronicled uh, through that. The book retells the stories of David and Solomon and the kingdom of Judah. Accounts, you know, already known uh, from the books of Samuel and Kings. But the Chronicle was not simply rehashing old news. He was highlighting God's work through the Davidic line. Okay? So as you look at Chronicles, you have to remember what, what he's trying to do is show the Davidic line of where God was going with that. Okay? And this remember, this is God's, God's sovereignty, showing that Davidic line all the way through to Matthew. And then you read Matthew, the first section of Matthew, I think it is, where it has all the names. 
or is it Luke? No, it's Matthew, okay, where it has all the names. And if you go back and study some of those names, it's an amazing study. But, you know, as we're reading it, we just kind of go, oh, so-and-so begot so-and-so. Somebody had so-and-so. Somebody, oh, okay, let me go. Okay, chapter two. Um, you know, we just kind of skip over those. And if we take a moment, yeah, I mean, and it's understandable uh, to do that. So as we, if we go back into the book of Matthew sometime, we'll, we'll highlight some of those names and, and say the reason why they're there. Because I'm like you, uh, you know, the first few times I just skipped right over them. I'm like, okay, names, awesome. I'm not going to remember any of them. You know what I mean? But it was an, uh, they were there for a reason. So, so the Chronicles wasn't just rehashing that. It was taking that Davidic line. Um, and his generation really needed to be reminded of the victories and Israel's heritage. Because again, this was after the exile. A lot of them didn't know the history. I mean, they might have known David was king. They might have known Solomon was king. They knew Saul screwed up you know, somehow, but they didn't really know it. You know what I'm saying? Um, so again, that was the whole point. And he was providing hope for the future. And then we hit, if I am, there we go, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, they're probably written together as one kind of book and then split up. Uh, the Jews, if you go back and look at some of their thoughts, some of their writings, and stuff really think they're one book instead of two. We like to split them up in the two. Uh, but they present the events of the restoration in the middle of the 5th century B.C. under the Persian rule. So this is right after Esther, right? Esther gets King Cyrus, you know, all that um, to release, or King Xerxes, and then after Xerxes was defeated and all that, you know, the release to them to be able to come back. And under that Persian rule, the Jews living in Babylon were allowed to return to the homeland and rebuild. And if you go to Israel, you can find Nehemiah's wall. They call it Nehemiah's wall because it's one of the walls that they've unearthed um, that Nehemiah uh, started building when they, when they came back. Uh, so you, Israel, as in any major city that was built in time, you had walls around it and then as the city grew, you would build new walls, you know. So this is one of the walls. It's kind of actually in the middle of the city, but it uh, was the outside gate at one point. Um, so the, the, the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, along with the certain prophets who were active during the time, if you go back to that one sheet, there's a whole bunch of prophets listed there, a whole bunch of minor prophets. Um, as they were rebuilding the temple, they started rebuilding the social and religious foundations of God's people also. So again, they had to reteach him. And we keep talking about that. And I think that's important for us because when I learned the Bible when I was young, I got certain bits, right? I remember certain things. And then as I get older, I learn more and I go, oh yeah, okay, I remember some of those things. Now, my pastor, when I was in junior high, um, and the beginning of high school came in and he led the junior high and high school through revelations. It was really cool. I mean, you know, to be that age and studying revelations that you didn't understand. Then I come back and I restudied as an adult and I go, wow, I don't remember a lot of this stuff. So it's the same thing about remembering and Ezra and Nehemiah had to do the same thing. Let me reteach you these things. So let's uh, talk about the, um, well, then we get to the book of Esther. And Esther demonstrates God's sovereign care and protection extended to his people 
that aren't back in Israel, that didn't come back, okay? They stayed out. Some of them stayed out because they wanted to stay out. Some of them stayed out because God practically told them to stay out. They felt that the Lord was telling them not to come back. There's all sorts of different reasons uh, why some would stay in Babylon and Persia and all that kind of stuff versus coming back uh, to Israel. Some of them had good lives. Why do I want to uproot my family and go back and rebuild? That doesn't sound fun to me. I mean, I'm 80. Now Bob's 80 and he would go back and rebuild. I know Bob, you know. <laughs> well, okay, the 79-year-old Bob would have. <laughs> but, um, but it shows how God still loves his people and still takes care of his people. And, and it, it, the book of Esther also shows that even when God is silent, he is still working. And I, I love the book of Esther. Sometime we'll go back into that book too. Uh, I love at the very end uh, how they tell the story of Esther and they make all these hissing noises. And every time, uh, um, oh, what's his name's name? I can't even remember it. No, huh? Oh, Haman. Haman. Yeah. Every time uh, Haman's name is mentioned, they have uh, what they call uh, ge- uh, geigers or something like that. And they, they make noises and they, and they hiss because they're blotting out his name. And then every time Esther's name or Mordecai's name is mentioned, they're like, yeah, they all scream, all the little kids, because every time they tell the story when they get to Purim and they still do that today, uh, which is really cool. <laughs> so, um, well, I think. I've done that once. I don't know. Have I done it twice? I don't know. So if yeah, okay, twice. So yeah, so yeah, we've done it. It never gets old, but I mean, it's kind of a cool, uh, it's a cool story. So I've only done Ruth once. So, uh, so we'll get there. Um, Let's talk about the roles in history because an interesting thing about historical books is the history of, Israel was written about and God emphasized in the writing of them that he created time, he created space, and he's sovereign over human history. So God wanted these historical writings out there, especially in a time when most religious expression was all about mythology. Okay, think about, you know, early, you know, Greek gods and all that was all based around mythology. Um, You know, Near East, all that kind of stuff. Uh, That was their worldview. But those events take place outside of history. Okay? They're not historical events that are written down saying, this is what happened. Most holy books of the you know, world religions are, are a collection of wisdom literature and religious sayings, okay? Um, religious saying, you know, different things that you might, you know, we would say common sense, but different sayings that, uh, um, I was going to try to come up with one on top of my head, but it doesn't work, um, you know, but, uh, but, but that's how it was. But Israel saw its own national history as an arena for, for really divine revelation. God's word for the world is largely, largely a narrative of his relationship with one nation and his plan on establishing a relationship with everyone, okay? So who is the father of history in the secular world? 
Anyone? Herodotus? Okay. We call him the father of history because he wrote about the, the Hundred Years' War. No, not the Hundred Years' War, but... Yeah, that was too late. Yeah, but it was. But there was a period of time he wrote about the wars between two nations over a period of time. It wasn't the Hundred Years' Wars, but I'll have to. Uh, it was the, the Greek and Persian Wars that he wrote about. Okay, what was interesting was a hundred years before, and he that was the first time that any history had kind of been written down in that way, according to the secular world. But a hundred years before that. The Bible included the history of Israel with many of the same features as we talk about when we think of history. You know, um, cause and effect connections, continuous narration, uh, fully developed characterization, and so on. All this kind of stuff. So why is history important to us? Well, there's a difference sometimes between the Jewish and Christian canons and the historical books um, they help us narrate the story of Israel's history for us, okay? And, and they bring all the books. The Christian canon separates and groups all the, the books that are predominantly historical in nature, a little different than the Jewish uh, you know, viewpoint of things, but they narrate the story from a religious viewpoint. The Jewish canon calls Joshua, uh, Judges, Samuel, and Kings the former or former prophets. But we would say, well, aren't they historical books? And you would be correct in saying that. And you would say, well, they're not prophetic books. Well, prophecy is not necessarily futuristic. We think a prophecy is future telling, right? Okay, that is not completely correct. A prophet is a truth teller. It could be truth about the past. It could be truth about the present. Or it could be truth about the future. So priests are prophets, okay? Pastors, in a sense, are prophets. Now, I'm not a future teller prophet. I'm a truth diviner, okay? That's the gifting that the Lord has given me. Do I always do it 100% correct? No, because I'm human. I mess up. And when I mess up, when I realize it, I come back and say, you know what? I taught this this way, but I really don't think it's that way now, okay? And this is why I don't think it's that way. You know, there's been on occasions that I've done that. I come back at one week, I preach something, and the next week I came back and said, you know, I studied that a little bit more, and I, I, I think I got that wrong. And that's okay. Uh, you know, the Lord is, uh, <laughs> loves us enough that He doesn't, you know, just strike us down when we do something wrong, you know. But prophecy is not that. It's, it's concerned with obedience and time and space and the here and now. Um, it looks at the covenants of the past and interprets the significance for the present as well as the future. And it uses history to tie the past to the presence. So they're, they're called the former prophets in the Jewish canon because the narrative of, nations, uh, of the nation of Israel, their reaction to the covenant throughout their history... So they, they present a history to Israel that's a, a prophetic point of view, okay? As they, look at, as they look at the history of it, they're telling the story of the prophetic, the future of what God wants to do, is, uh, do here. Because the Jewish tradition credits prophets for the composition of some of these books. They, they, you know, like Samuel for the book of Judges, 
or Jeremiah for the for first Kings. Now, we're not quite sure if those prophets actually wrote those books. We think we they did, but there's the evidence isn't there for that. It's lacking to say the prophets wrote them, but it's logical because of the devotion to the prophecy that are in these books. They're former prophets because they relate to the early history of the prophecy and write the natural and the national history. Okay, so you got the just what is happening, but it's happening for Israel. So it's the natural and national history in light of the theological and prophetic interest. So there's a whole point to it. From the Jewish standpoint, these books, Joshua, Judges, Samuels, the Kings, are both historical and prophetic. So the Bible is more than a, than a history book. Uh, it writes history from a decidedly religious perspective. There's no attempt today at what we might call objectivity in modern history writing, okay? And right now we're seeing a lot of our history rewritten with a, you know, with a, I dare say, a theological bent. And when I say theological, I don't mean godly bent, but with a, with a history of this uh, from a political perspective, okay? Uh, from one side or the other, trying to rewrite history versus being objective and saying this is what happened, okay? Um, but the authors here are writing what scholars refer to as a salvation history. It all points to us needing salvation, okay? Both the Jews and those outside of Jewishness, the Gentiles. They don't really call that. We don't really talk about Gentiles until we get start talking about Paul and all that kind of stuff and, and opening it up and Peter opening it up to the Gentiles finally and all that and bringing them into the kingdom and the whole, all the fights of, well, do I have to become Jewish first? Because that means, oh, yeah, I'm not sure about that, you know. Um, we don't really get into that. But this is all about a salvation history and this distinguishes biblical history from general history uh, which usually deals with the sequence of humans events as they happened so the salvation history includes supernatural divine revelations uh, you know things that god does that that no one else can, uh, can in time and space and recorded in, in history and scripture to promote faith this is a key point the recording of the salvation history is important in biblical faith the events themselves cannot be recreated okay we're not calling down fire onto the uh you know onto uh, the the sacrifice and burning it all up you know like uh what's his name did with all the other prophets uh up on elijah thank you Ajah or shah i forgot which one <laughs> yeah i know yeah there we go um but uh you know we cannot study these things firsthand we just look at the recorded history the you know the record of the events so faith must be a part of the study of the written word we have to have faith in those that have written this, that it comes from God to be able to say, I believe this. Because with biblical faith, then it assumes that historical events here are true and faithful to what happened. 
Okay, um, it's a precursor to us needing faith later on, and we'll talk about that in a second. But biblical authors frequently appealed for events, you know, to the events for validation of their theological points, and they assume the historical accuracy of the events that they describe. In other words, the facts of these historical events make it possible to accept the theological ideas of the Bible as true. If we look at the facts and we say this really happened, then we can look at the theology and say this is also true. Okay, Sodom and Gomorrah, do we believe that it actually got, you know, fire from heaven came down? Now, does that matter whether there was a, an Italian volcano that went off that caused all this stuff? Or whether God sent fire from heaven, you know, from the from like outside of Earth's atmosphere down was a meteorite. What it doesn't matter. The faith comes in saying this happened. I believe it happened, and I believe God made it happen. Doesn't matter how it happened. Okay, so it's important for us to have that theological faith when we're reading this stuff because the acceptance doesn't prove its theology is true. But historical trustworthiness is necessary in order for the theological idea to be true. Okay, so for example, we believe that the Lord of the Old Testament is a gracious and loving God, don't we? Everybody should answer yes. Okay, and he keeps his you know his covenant with his people. That's a theological you know assertion. But unless Yahweh did, in fact, make and keep the covenant with the children of Israel, the whole theological idea is groundless, regardless of its plausibility. You see, you see what I'm saying? If we can't believe that God is faithful, then the whole thing gets thrown out. Because if the history isn't true, then the theology based on the history is just human speculation, right? The faith in the Bible needs to be that it's historical fact. We need to believe that Jonah went inside of a well. Because if we don't believe that, and we say, well, that's not physically possible, then we're saying that God is not sovereign over everything. We're saying God does not have the power to make man and make woman. God doesn't have the power to make the earth. If we don't believe that Jonah could go inside of a well, God could have made the well stomach really big just for Jonah. He could provide extra, you know, there's all sorts of things God could have done because he's sovereign over things. He made them, okay? The maker can manipulate them. So again, it, you know, we have to look at these things as historical, believing them. And this is really an ingredient of biblical faith, is believing biblical history, okay? If we can believe the history, then... It's, a, it's one ingredient of our faith. Uh, faith in the Old Testament is faith of, you know, in past events. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen it, read it, whatever, but the difference between faith, historical faith, and history, people are always trying to take what they've read in the Bible and trying to prove it historically without faith, and then trying to, to say that it couldn't have happened. Right. 
Yeah. Okay, and that's kind of the difference between the two. Mm -hmm. We try to, where we have faith that it did happen, uh, and and then we find stuff. We go, yeah, see, we we knew that that story was true, versus trying to go out there and dig and prove. Right. Yep. Just like the pardoning of the Red Sea has been a typical one. Right. They point out. That, and, and I think I've heard it. I forgot all I know about it, which I've forgotten most of it. But, <laughs> but there is some, there is actually physics. Uh, physics. Right, that could explain some of it. Explains that. Right. There is physics that, that deals with it, but we don't have to worry about the physics because we have faith that God did it. Correct. Yeah, the physics, we don't have to have that. It's the same thing with the... He created physics anyway. Right. It's the same thing with the plagues of Egypt, right? One plague led to another. And if you look at them from a scientific point of view, um, one of the things could have led to the other, could lead to the other. The frogs lead to the gnats and the gnats. And, and, you know, scientifically that could have happened that way. But we're taking out the purpose of God if we just try to explain it all scientifically what began the whole process it was god and that's what the world um, what i mean by the right. world is a non-religious try to mm -hmm. explain god religious people right right well let me let me end with we'll we'll talk a little bit about who wrote these books but but let me we're at the end but but we're talking about faith believing the history is important to our faith. It's the same as believing Christ's resurrection is important to our New Testament faith. And not that they're separate faiths, don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying I'm looking at them from two different standpoints. Because here in 1 Corinthians 15, oh, oh I didn't put it in here. Well, I'll read it, okay? Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19, it says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. So you had a lot of, a lot of New Testament, you know, during that time period, people saying, oh, well, there really is no resurrection. You know, this is what really happened with Christ, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and here he's saying, whoa, whoa, wait a second. If you're saying that, then all of it's not true. Okay, um, and he goes on in verse uh, 16, for if we're uh, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this, we have hope in Christ. We are all people. Uh, we are of all people must uh, most to be pitied. So that, uh, you know, the idea of we, we have to believe in the resurrection. That's what everything relies on, you know, that faith that God did these things. So let me jump to who wrote the historical books. Uh, basically, we have no clue. How's that for an answer? 
the titles show us the subjects of the books, okay, but not necessarily the author. Joshua seems to have been the source of his book, but he didn't write all of it. Samuel's death is recorded in 1 Samuel 25, so he certainly couldn't have written 2 Samuel. You see my point? Um, uh, we think it was kind of named that in honor of him as the last uh, judge uh, slash prophet uh, who anointed the first two kings. Ezra and Nehemiah have personal memories in them, but they don't say they wrote them. Most scholars believe that Ezra wrote both of them, but many believe that Ezra compiled the Chronicles also, but they're not sure, okay? That's not the point. It's kind of fun to talk about. But Ruth and Esther, Jewish tradition says that Samuel wrote the book of Ruth. Or not? Uh, yeah, Samuel wrote the book of Ruth, but was, this was only, the, the only reason was because the languages within Ruth and Judges, which they think Samuel had a, a hand in writing, were a lot alike. So they said, oh, well, he must have wrote this. But again, we don't know who wrote it, in fact. So some say that Esther should not be in the Bible, as we talked about, because his name doesn't, uh, God's name doesn't uh, you know, appear in there. But Josephus, which was a modern day to... Uh, uh, to Christ and so forth, uh, that uh, time period right after Christ, he wrote that Mordecai was the author. But again, that was Jewish tradition. Now, could have been him. We just don't know. So the narrative of the second set of historical books basically is this. It shows a relationship between God and his people setting up the idea of salvation for the world. Okay. The need of a Savior, because the people apparently cannot save themselves. They're screw-ups, okay? Just like you and I are. And some of them were better than others, and God still blessed people during the times. God still blessed the nation during this time. But when they disobey, God still disciplined them. And it needed a salvation. It needed a Savior in there to bridge that between God and and him, especially when the temple was come in and destroyed. Because if we stuck on the Jewish religion, and the Jewish religion is lost right now. The Jewish people, in a sense, they still have a nation now, but they are lost because they do not have that connection with God. Why don't they have the connection with God? They don't have a temple to sacrifice in. So their connection is completely cut off in their way of thinking when it comes to how they connect with God because it all centered around the sacrifice. And if they can't sacrifice, and there's certain rules, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that ha certain things, certain rules that have to happen, have to be in the way, have to work for them to be able to get back to sacrificing, and there'll be a political, uh, and in times there'll be a political solution to that. We'll see what happens. So. Some do, and some don't. Yeah. So, you know, uh, a lot of, I don't want to say, and don't get me wrong, please don't take this the wrong way. A lot of them are Jews in name only. And what I mean by that is they're going, I have Jewish blood in me. I can even show you the, I sent it off to test. I have Jewish blood in me. But that doesn't mean they're spiritual. Most of Jerusalem is non-spiritual, 
Okay, Most of the Jews just are secular Jews for the lack of the term. It's almost like Christian in name only. You know, well, I'm a Christian because my great-grandparents went to this church and they helped build this church, so therefore I'm a Christian. Well, no, you have to decide that on your own. It's not a family lineage, pass it down. And unfortunately, the Jews go with lineage for the most part. So most of them are secular Jews, uh, which that's why we should be praying for them and supporting them and doing what we can for them to bring them back into the fold. You know, in a sense, and again, don't take me wrong on this, but I've talked about this, uh, you know, multiple times. We're grafted into the family, right? We're adopted into the family. So therefore we are, anyone? Jews, okay? So we're trying to bring our family back into the fold, you know? Now, can you go out there and say that politically? That is the wrong thing to say politically, okay? Uh, You will get, yeah, all sorts of things. But that's what the scriptures say. We're grafted into that. And when you're grafted into it, you become part of the root feeds you, right? You graft something into another plant, that's what happens. So we're grafted into the kingdom of God. That means technically we are Jews. So there you go. Kind of an interesting thought. I used to have a Jewish friend. He's passed away now. Mm-hmm. But uh, he, uh, uh, we didn't go into depth. But every time we talked about things that had anything to do with, with the Middle East and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I just knew that he never talked about it in a religious way. Mm-hmm. They talk about it in a, a political way, and I, you know, pray, you know, even statements like "Praise the Lord, we have a homeland now because we're protected," or you know, we have a way to protect ourselves compared to you know Hitler and during those times, you know. So they're happy about that, but they're not really religious, and uh, you know, in the in the good sense of the word religious. So, yeah. You can tell we're really religious from the... Yes. From the ones that are... The hair. <laughs> with the rings that go down. The Temple Mount today, is that the Dome of the Rock? Yes. The Temple Mount's where the Dome is. Now, is that in Jewish-held territory? It's... Well, in the 67, or was it the 73? I used to know this really well, and it's kind of... Over the years, I, I forget things. Um, we'll, we'll do that Jewish series again sometimes too uh, about the homeland. But um, in one of those wars, they retook Jerusalem as their capital. The Jews did. Israel did because Jordan had that land, okay? And it was cut out around Jerusalem. And it, the, the Temple Mount itself is under Arab control. Jerusalem is under... Um, Jewish control uh, for the most part, (laughs) if you want to call that control. Um, But the Temple Mount, yeah, you can't take a Bible. You go through metal detectors to get up there and and all that kind of stuff. So that's Arab control control. by agreement. It's political agreement. Um, Yes, the political side of the Jews agreed to that. There are a lot of Jews that want to take it over by force. But as soon as they do that, it starts a war. Yeah. Now, in the Six-Day War, um, which is kind of interesting, several things happened when they were attacked by all these nations during the Six-Day War. They had one guy who was colorblind, and they put him on the front where the tanks were because he could see through the defenses and the uh, 
He could see the tanks better than the non-colorblind guys could from the camouflage. So he could point out the tanks and they were just nailing them because he was colorblind. And now another thing they did is the Golan Heights belonged to uh, Syria at the time and they would lob down uh, mortars onto the farmers and their land from the Golan Heights. So Israel pointed, uh, planted a whole bunch of eucalyptus trees along the main road there. So during the Six-Day War, when they took over the Golan Heights, what they did was when they were initially attacked, they didn't have enough people up there to protect it. So they devised this plan. They got a whole bunch of people to start driving their cars up north and by those trees. And they would turn their lights on and they would drive by the trees like, like the army's coming. They would turn their lights off drive really fast back down the road and then turn the lights on and come up the road again. In other words, like, like convoys are coming up here and it, and it kept the Syrians from invading from that side. And then eventually they went up there and overtook the Syrian Heights uh, or the Golan Heights and stuff. So that, that's right. So they did that until the army could get up there and get enough people up there. So, I mean, they're pretty ingenious. Yep. So any other questions? Okay, well, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your history, your history that relates to us, your history that says that uh, we, need a, we need a Savior. Everything points toward your holiness and your desire to have a relationship with us, and we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for sending your Son uh, who died on the cross for us so we could have a relationship for you or with you. I pray that you continue to bless our study, continue to bless our church, uh, watch over us, protect us, and that we may go out and glorify you each and every day. In your loving name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You guys online, have a good night. <laughs> Enjoy some really yummy dessert over there. <laughs>